Hello, this is Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, Professor of Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific University. I'm your guest host on the Classical Ideas podcast, and we're highlighting Latinx religions for a few episodes. And I'm happy to welcome Dr. Brett Hendrickson, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Lafayette College. Hi, Brett. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it has been a long time. Been a long time. I'm glad, glad we could finally meet yeah. again. <laughs> thanks for joining me here to talk about your new book, Mexican-American Religions, an Introduction, published by Routledge. And uh, first off, this is a, th- a synthesis. It's a work that takes existing scholarship, places it in kind of new different categories, themes for a larger audience, a uh, much broader audience than the typical academic audience. Why did you want to write this? Yeah, thanks. Well, I think that, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to write this is I feel that Latinx religious studies has really reached a a level of maturity that makes a synthesis possible. You know, there's so much great stuff out there now, and there has been for the last decade or two. I I think there's really a corpus of, of scholarship to work with now that allows for this synthesis to happen. Um, moreover, I, you know, I'm sure you and I are on the same page with this. Uh, there's a need for these kind of synthetic treatments that retell narratives of American religious history in a way that is, is much more cognizant, aware of, inclusive of Latino, Latino voices and histories. Um, and then, you know, to be honest, I think one of the other reasons I ended up writing it is I was, you know, the, the editor at Routledge re- reached out to me about it. They're starting a new series about religion in America, and this is going to be one of the titles in that series. So I'm, you know, I'm happy that they are including this in that overall series of, of American religions. Absolutely. Me too. I'm really glad. Yeah. Um, you know, here, here to all of that. And, you know, right. probably to all of us who've labored in this field for a very long time uh, to keep knocking at the door of the American yeah. religious corpus. I like that word. Yeah. Right. Which simply means, you know, the collected work of everybody right. who's ever done anything, you know, in, in all of our various fields, historians, religious studies folks, anthropology, sociology, it all kind of blends together in some set. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this fits in the mainstream, this is not a side note. This is not a one chapter. This is not talk about Cesar Chavez, mention La Virgen, and then move on. That you're really well, trying to of, create a cohesiveness here, right? Exactly. And, you know, I mentioned early in the book, it's it's not only a demographic question, but it also is a demographic question. There are 37 million people in the United States who identify as Mexican-American in some way or another. And that's like 11% of our population. It's a very, very important group uh, demographically, not to mention historically, culturally, and everything else. So, you know, it's time. It's time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's been time. (laughs) It's been time for about a while. And speaking of, I mean, I am one of those 37 million, and um, but you're not. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> okay, so before we move on, you know, we should broach the subject um, because the politics of representation is still a, a very potent force in the guild. Um, sure. So why are you a white Presbyterian who grew up in Arkansas, if I remember correctly, and you've yep, lived all right, over the right. you you've lived all over the place, if I remember correctly as well. Um, what are you? doing writing a book about mexican-american religions yeah you know that's that's a good question and you know it's one i i continue to work on myself 
Um, you know, the the short answer is I, I love this topic, and, and I think we all write about hopefully what we love. But then that opens up other questions. You know, why do I love this topic? That sort of thing. Um, you know, professionally and personally, I had some preparation for this. Uh, what when I got out of high school, I went to Argentina for a year before I started college and um, learned Spanish. Ended up going back to Argentina for another year after that. And Argentina is a long way from Mexico and Mexican Americans, but uh, nevertheless, I started getting involved in in Latin American and Latino issues. I was a Latin American studies major as an undergrad. Um, and then have had a lot of opportunities to work in Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, uh, oftentimes alongside or, or with Mexican-American people. And uh, so that I guess just association has, has led to a love. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I think that, I, I think one of the signs of, of the maturity I was talking about earlier in this field is that, you know, it's important that not that that people who study Mexican Americans in their religious history and religious practice are not only Mexican American, I think. I think it's important that this become a topic that is important to all of us, um, you know, inside and outside of, of the ethnic community. Um, with that said, I try to remain always tentative. Um, my my scholarly kind of orientation is not to make normative statements about what Mexican Americans are or do or should do. I certainly don't do that. Um, and I was explaining to a friend recently that, you know, I, I think that I really try to, I, I try to remain very integrated into lots of different discussions. And, um, and I certainly always, I hope, I hope at least that I'm always very upfront about the fact of who I am and where I come from and that you know, that I'm not trying to pull a fast one or, or pretend I'm something I'm not. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There have been many, many weird stories about that. I know. Uh, right. It's yeah, just so, been the, the most fascinating mm -hmm. thing to find out that so many people want to be like me, you know, <laughs> that they're, <laughs> well, that I they're be like you. <laughs> <laughs> that they're making, that they're making it up, you know, that they're creating this biography yeah. and, and it's, you know, the, right. the, that whole idea of, you know, cloaking yourself as something else. And certainly that's not what you're doing. We just uh, merely put the question in there to kind of be honest, you know, the politics no, representation is, and I'm sure you, you thought about it without, without. No, I have. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. let me just make it clear. Um, this needs to be done and you are your, your background, uh, your facility with the language, with the culture, and just the fact that you've written two previous books <laughs> that have a yeah. lot that have added tremendous amount to our understanding of Mexican American religion oh, uh, certainly you. makes you qualified. That. Certainly makes you qualified. Yeah. All right, so yeah. we're done with that. Okay, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> right at the beginning, you tell the reader that this will be a Christianity plus approach, quote unquote, yeah. uh, simply because most Americans identify as a Christian of some sort, um, and that always feels like something necessary but unsatisfactory, if you know what I yeah. mean. Yeah. Because we want to note that it's a diverse community. I think all of us scholars who work in this field, we do want to note that this is diverse. It's diverse. It's got this. It's got that. Um, and of course, the problem is that it is diverse, but it isn't. You know. And yeah. how did you handle that question? I mean, what did you feel when you realized that you were going to have to do it this way? And it was going to kind yeah. of leave you wanting a little bit. 
Yeah, it, it's it's so tricky. Uh, you know, there there is so much diversity, and I think any synthesis book like this, a synthetic book, a treatment, you really have to make choices. And um, you know, I my own background and other research interests have mostly been related to Mexican American Catholics, and I know that they get the majority of the treatment here uh, in this book. Um, and, and just reality of the situation is the, the majority of Mexican-Americans who are religious uh, are Catholic or some type of Protestant. Um, with that said, I think that, you know, there's, there's the reason to say Christianity plus, I think, is to say that even though a lot of the story is going to be related to Christianity, the, the plus part is not only other religions, but I think it's also uh, what Mexican Americans bring to the Christian experience in a way that, you know, maybe challenges assumptions or changes the way people think about Christianity in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, so there's there's that. Though I understand what you're saying, it, it can be a, a little unsatisfactory to say, um, you know, to, to stay so much within Christianity. Um, there is a chapter at the end of the book that talks about some Mexican-American religious minorities and particularly touches on what that means in terms of their own uh, ethnicity. You know, a lot of the, this book is, I think, really ethnic studies of, of thinking about what role religion plays in ethnicity. And if Christianity, particularly Catholicism, but Christianity in general is so tied to Mexican-American and other Latino ethnic self-identification and also identification from others, you know, it makes a big difference to think about that. So I, I try to touch on some of those things in the book, but yeah, it, there's there's plenty more to still be covered in that area. Yeah, yeah. Uh, didn't really touch on that, but just in brief, uh, certainly the last chapters, uh, last couple of chapters deal with uh, Mexican-American Jews, Buddhists, mm -hmm. Islam, other, quote unquote, other or nuns, the, the the idea of humanism, I guess, for as a broad kind of umbrella term. Um, right. Uh, you know, and we can talk about that towards the end. I mean, we might be seeing uh, move towards those faiths. Uh, we might yeah. be seeing kind of the pendulum swing all kinds of different places. One of the things about Mexican Americas is that, you know, we've been here a long, 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 long time, right? And oh, so yeah. uh, our moorings can become detached from these very established, fixed kind of institutional religious behemoths, you know, the Catholic yes, Church of Protestantism. Absolutely. And then so what happens when we're unmoored, right? And and for many, right. it's a good thing. It's a necessary thing, right? Because yeah. um, your book captures what you and others have been reporting for years, that religious and ethnic identity are not fixed, stable definitions, right? Even though people maybe believe that or act that way or try to act that way, that they're in flux, right? Um, was that an essential part of your plan in writing the book? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was part of the the plan in general to start the story before 1848. You know, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. You know, of of looking back. Not, I don't spend a, a ton of time on this, but sometime with Mexican religious history as a precursor to what would eventually become the Mexican American religious experience. Uh, and I think that the flux is is always on the table because the, the story is so much about colonial contact and conflict. 
uh, about different waves of, of colonialism, starting with, with Spain, uh, and then of course, um, the United States. Um, and it's just, it's, it's terrifically important. Uh, the other thing that I think comes up in the book and has been covered by many others so well is that yourself included, that the, the, the decision to switch, uh, to do rel religiously switch from Catholicism to Pentecostalism or some other form of Protestantism often has major ethnic ramifications uh, for people, you know, that they, uh, they, they remain Mexican American, of course, but it definitely changes their relationship to themselves, to their community, their families. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's really, that's really key. And that uh, the other thing that I try to, talk about, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. The, the other thing that I think comes up a little bit in the book, or, um, you know, I tried to really stay focused on Mexican Americans. I think it's important to kind of also highlight that Latino is, is an, it's not meaningless. It certainly has meaning, but to talk specifically about Mexican Americans or Puerto Ricans or Cuban Americans or whatever, uh, adds a lot more richness to the story. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, I think that there is more and more a, a bit of a, a pan Latino ethnicity that people, I mean, somewhat accept, not always, um, certainly, you know, understand what it means, that's for sure. Um, and that also has, I think, religious importance. And um, I think this book is good, though, because it allows people to think about Mexican-American ethnicity rather than, you know, the overall umbrella of Latinx, Latino, Latina, religious. Oh, yeah. You, you do have a, a little a section of that in the beginning, right? Because anybody yeah. who writes in this field, you, you, you need a couple of definitions, right? And I don't think we can ever get away from the definitional trope right at the beginning. Yeah. Every, you, uh, let me define my terms. Let me define my terms. And again, yep. it's often... Uh, unsatisfactory, maybe not to us, but to other readers who are like, no, you should do this, you should do that, but it's your book. Yeah. Right. And so you get yeah. to define these terms, <laughs> right? Ultimately. That's right. Um, and so that's why, for those of you who are curious, it is Mexican American. It's not Chicano, Chicana, it's not Latinx, it's not Latin, uh, simply because yeah. you're you're trying to define and conscript what you're doing to this particular group. Right, because that's yeah, the nature. That's, that's the nature right. of that is the nature of this volume that you that you just produced for Routledge. The book is Mexican American Religions: An Introduction, and I'm talking to Dr. Britt Hendrickson. Um, a significant portion of the book is about Catholicism, institutional and popular, institutional meaning church uh, hierarchy, etc. Popular meaning yeah. everyday Catholics just doing stuff, yeah. right? Uh, and mm -hmm. again, it's the Christianity plus approach, what you just mentioned, plus meaning how people make sense of their Catholicism, how they how they act it out, how they live it out, if you will. Um, and, and you've written about curanderismo and the rule of the pilgrimage site, uh, the Santuario, the Chimayo before. Um, mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about your previous work and about the outsized role that popular religion has among Mexican-Americans? Oh, sure. Thanks for that opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, my, my dissertation, which then I revised and became my first book, is about, um, about curanderismo. Uh, and it's specifically about the impact that curanderismo and curanderas, curanderos, have had on Mexican-American populations, but also on overall, pop, you know, overall U.S. populations. You know, that's something I've always been very curious about. And maybe this is a role I can play as a, as a white academic of Mexican-American religion. 
I really am curious about what impact Mexican-Americans have had outside of the Mexican-American community on the overall US society, including on Anglos. Um, and so the, my first book about curanderismo really does map that and shows how this, uh, this religious healing tradition has flourished and changed uh, over time, but also, also always had uh, you know, some impact outside of the Mexican-American community on other patients um, um, and other clients. My second book, which I just loved writing so much, um, is a history of the Santuario de Chimayo, which is the largest Catholic pilgrimage site in the United States. Uh, it's in a small town village north of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it's to this church uh, that was built in the early 1800s that is famous for having a hole in the floor uh, and, and pilgrims go to this church and they get dirt out of the hole to use on their aches and pains and to help mm -hmm. heal yeah. their, their uh, sicknesses and, and, and illnesses. Been there, done um, that. <laughs> yeah, it's a great place. It's really interesting. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, you know, and so the, you know, those two things, curanderismo and, and these, this pilgrimage, which while it is inside of a church, has had a lot of, um, you know, it's a long history of being somewhat outside of the official you know, practices of the, of the Catholic church. Um, you know, they've, the recently the, the archdiocese of Santa Fe and by recently, I mean the last 50 years or so mm -hmm. has tried to kind of rein it in and kind of interpret it for everyone, but it, it was definitely kind of on its own before that. Um, you know, I just, one of the reasons I think you have to talk about popular religion when you talk about Mexican Americans, uh, Mexican American Catholics specifically is because uh, for so many decades, um, Mexican-Americans, after their incorporation into the United States, you know, halfway through the 19th century, uh, while they were certainly a, a focus of parts of the efforts of the U.S. Catholic Church, uh, they were never given, I think, for, for many years at least, the kind of attention they deserved. Uh, and sometimes, you know, popular religion was what I think sustained Mexican-American Catholicism during that time. Uh, also sometimes even before the arrival of the United States in the far Northern reaches of Mexico and New Spain, where you know, some, it wasn't too common to, you know, priests could sometimes be far and few between, not always, but sometimes, uh, just leading to these really strong popular traditions of Catholicism. Um, and, and finally, I think another reason that this is the case is, um, you know, in the study of Catholicism in the United States, there already has been among Anglo-Catholics a differentiation between, let's say, Italian Catholics and Irish Catholics uh, or Polish Catholics, and to what extent they participate or don't in the official hierarchy of the church and how often they enter the priesthood and all that sort of thing. And I think when Mexican-Americans just have a really strong tradition of doing things uh, in their families and in their communities, sometimes with a priest's help and approval and sometimes not. Um, and so it's just, it's just, you know, a very rich part of, of the tradition. And, uh, you know. Yeah. And, it, and so. it almost goes kind of unspoken. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I was a kid and uh, I, I've always had like problem, like arch problems, foot problems. We don't get into the gory mm -hmm. details, but my great grandma, <laughs> my great grandma who was from, from Mexico, uh, she would like light a cigar, oh. you know, and blow smoke, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. she, would, she would, you know, do the little limpia, right? Uh, the cleansing. Yeah. 
right? And yeah. then she would have her little shot of whiskey. I don't know if that was medicinal or not. There was a Vietnam statue of the Vietnam statue of another saint, right? A little rosary. And it was a drink. It was a little bit of water. And then they would rub like the sobadora, if I'm right or correct. Yeah, that's they, right. Would rub, they would rub my ankles uh, and rub my feet every night. And, you know, and I was like, uh, I had no idea. You know, and my yeah. uh, my my family, pretty, pretty Catholic, pretty, pretty seriously yeah. Catholic, not institutionally Catholic, which is not but su- not surprising, um, but popular, ca- popularly Catholic. Absolutely. absolutely. Right. And so nobody right. would come in and say, don't do that. That's terrible. That's this. That's that. It was just so much part of of a culture, part of a community. Right. And, you know, to be honest, part of a people for whom. Access to health care was not there. So access to institutional priests and parishes, very hard to come by. And that access to healthcare, very hard to come by. So it it makes sense, right? That there's just a natural fit of of these two institutions, if you will, operating together, right? Exactly. I think it also- Yeah, I think it also tells a story a bit too of the mestizo nature of Mexican-American life, you know, that- you know, you had the Virgen there and the other saint, but then you also had the tobacco smoke, um, which I, you know, I, I probably can't draw a straight line from one from, you know, an indigenous source to that. But I, I ready to pretty much guarantee that that is has an indigenous origin. Oh, without so. question that and water, yeah. you know, water exactly. as a, it draws power, right? It draws yeah. power from its. Uh, it's essential, right? It's essential in healing. Yeah. It's essential in in spiritism, right? In transmitting yeah. from the spirit world. So yeah, I mean, later on, you know, I was what ten, so I didn't know anything, right? But but later uh-huh. on, I was going, oh my god, I was part of this this great great, you know, ritual yeah. that that, that 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 has been passed down. That's the thing. I mean, it's yeah. been orally transmitted from from her mom and her mom, and it's just it's just an amazing yeah. way that that. Mexicana and Mexican-American women have been able to kind of secure a place for themselves. And let's be, let's be real here, Brett, where there really is no official place for them in the Catholic church in terms of clergy, (laughs) right? So this is a place where they can operate freely, right? They operate freely here. You know, it's a, it's a real place for leadership and and engagement and yeah, it's, it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I must admit that I felt a bit of a flashback <laughs> on reading the chapters of Mexican American Protestantism, uh, mainline evangelical Pentecostal varieties. Mainline, we're talking uh, Baptist, Disciples of Christ, Presbyterian, uh, yeah. others, uh, evangelical, yep. Southern Baptist, um, maybe from the Wesleyan strain, Methodist yep. possibly, and Pentecostals of all stripes, Assemblies of God, et cetera, yep. et cetera of which I've uh, spent the last better part of 25 years studying. Um, Mm -hmm. And so how does religious identity and ethnicity operate in those groups? Is it different from Catholicism? What did you find in doing all your reading for this book? Yeah. You know, I I think it is somewhat different. Um, You know, I, when you, when you say flashback, you know, it, it also is a hard to tell this story because I, you know, I was kind of, if you follow the first few chapters, I'm, I'm really talking about Mexican American Catholics. And then I can have to pause and back up the train a little bit and go back to Mexican American Protestants. Yeah. 
and this is one of the problems we mentioned before with diversity. It's kind of hard to tell these stories together, even mm -hmm. though I think that, you know, ideally they should be told together. Uh, because I think, as, as you well know, uh, the decision to go to a Protestant or a Pentecostal church is not necessarily the final decision. You might go back to the Catholic church. You might go back and forth. Um, you know, there it's not constant or forever. And, and moreover, just because some people in a family decide to switch religions doesn't mean that everybody does. And so you maintain these relationships and things like that. Right. Um, with that said, I think that the, particularly in evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity, and, and you know this better than I do, the, 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 the focus on making a decision and on individual experience uh, and, and turning your life over to, to the spirit, to Jesus, um, are all things that are certainly not foreign completely to Catholicism, but being a Catholic, growing up Catholic, is, is something that is, at least in, in my study, and I think in many people's, a lot less of a, of a volitional choice, you know, that you would say, oh, well, today I, I chose to be a good Catholic. Well, no, you were just, you were born in that community, and it's part of the community you, you are, you're living in. Uh, that can be true, of course, for people who grow up in Pentecostal and, and evangelical mm -hmm. households as well. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, as you know too, that they they reinscribe that narrative of of making a choice. You know, you can't at some point in your life as an evangelical Christian, you're going to have to decide to 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 follow Jesus. Um, now, to talk about the eth ethnic part of that, I think that makes a big difference. To say, okay, uh, part of of this religion that I I practice is something I really chose. It's something that I've really embraced, and it's something that I know. Uh, particularly in many Mexican American communities, is going to set me somewhat apart from the the, the majority. Uh, and as a result, you know, those are all things that are going to kind of have an, an impact on how a person understands themselves, or how other people are going to look at them as well. And uh, you know, I think that's those are all important things. Um, I. Another way to think about this too, I think, is, is questions of, of religious culture uh, and you know, the kind of way that your house looks. Is it gonna have images of the saints and of the Virgin in it? Um, or is it gonna have you know, a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall or maybe as some people have said, like embroidered Bible verses? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and as, as Dan Ramirez and others have talked about, are, is your music gonna sound different? Yeah. Uh, and the answer yeah, is, yeah, yeah it is. Exactly. That's so, right. Um, That's, those, those all have an impact. That is really interesting. Um, I, I guess it's a benefit of hindsight, right? The benefit of not having done that work in, in, in a bit. But the idea of to add it to that religious culture, uh, what you put on your walls, what you choose, what becomes the new ritual, what becomes the new material mm -hmm. culture of your religion, Bibles, yeah. right? Uh, right? Do you get highlighters? What kind of a Bible? <laughs> um, you know, do you dress up on Sunday? What kind of a dress up, you know, um, th th there's, there's new religious stuff out there. You know what I mean? There's new material stuff out there. It's, it's not mm -hmm. emphasized, right? Because it's not supposed to be the whole kind of iconoclasm of Protestantism, uh, often rears its ugly head in, in terms of the kind of Catholic Protestant bifurcation, if you will, about, mm -hmm. about, well, we don't do that. We don't, we no longer do this right. and all that. Another thing that I want to 
just hit upon in this is the sense of ostracism, right? I mean, that's what I found over and over again in my own work that you did capture uh, that you mentioned right now is they're no longer part of this, right? Where can I still go to the wedding? Yes, but I can't drink. Can I still go to the funeral? And because it's Mexican-American, yes, but we still drink there. (laughs) Okay, right, Right. Um, you know, but your evangelical cousin will not. Right. Right. Uh, they won't dance at the are we going to have a baptism and, and we're going to have a party later, a fiesta. Yes. But I can't dance. Right. OK, so, <laughs> but there's a sense of ostracism. But as as Mexican-American evangelicalism and Pentecostalism mature, I want to say, because really they're into their hundredth over 100 years. Right. Yeah, so right. they're into probably their third or fourth or fifth generation. So we really mm-hmm. can't talk about it as new anymore, even though the right. media the media often likes to talk about it as new. It's not new, okay? But ostracism, right? right? The idea that they feel persecuted, right? They feel like my my family no longer talks to me. Um, I'm doing doing this for God. And I don't care how I look. I don't care if I look, if I'm like, well, they're all hardcore now, quote unquote, right? They're all born (laughs) again, quote unquote. Because I can hear that lingo in my head right, from the interviews I've done over the years, is that their Catholic friends and family think that their Pentecostal evangelical side of the family are too good for them now, Mm -hmm. right, that, oh, well, they're, they're holier than thou, they're, they're holding us in judgment, yeah, 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 so, because we, we, we're not, quote, unquote, all saved, or all this, (laughs) all that, so, but, right, I'm going to take this further, to, to talk about, what happens with this Mexican American evangelical Pentecostal identity? And I don't know, you didn't, you wrote this during the pandemic. Am I correct? Yeah. yeah yes, so that's right. Well, probably the had, second half of it, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So right. you had a lot of time to think, right? And obviously you have a lot of time <laughs> to kind of chop things down. But the idea of like, yeah. what's happening with, I know, right? Way too much, which is a dangerous thing. <laughs> you probably have the idea of like Mexican American evangelicalism how much Mexicanness can you keep, right? You yeah. certainly can't yeah. keep the Catholic culture part. You got to cut that out, right? right? What do you use to replace it, right? And yeah. maybe one of the arguments for future work, right? We can't do it now, but we're going to move into a, a top, the topic of politics in a minute, is mm-hmm. has possibly kind of right-wing, conservative, evangelical politics become the vacuum that has at least revved up a certain percentage of that population where they, yeah. they this is where I'm more comfortable. This is where I belong. This, these are people who will, who all agree with me. And yeah. not only do they agree with me religiously, they agree with me on the big quote unquote issues of the day. Yeah. Well, I think anecdotally, at least, I think you're really onto something here. I mean, I think the the work has to still be done to show all this, but that sounds really right to me. Um, You know, I think that we can we can say that, well, um, if you support Republicans, then you don't understand their racist dog whistles about CRT and all this kind of stuff. But I think you're right that there are still plenty of Mexican-American and other Latino Pentecostals, particularly evangelicals, who are part of churches that provide them with a community that's really, really essential and important to them that overlaps significantly with 
um, Republican voter blocks. And, you know, that's going to be a, a, a political as well as a religious home for people. Um, now, whether that that further dilutes, if we want to say that, or takes away their Mexican identity, Mexican-American identity, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would I would think that some of them are going to say no. On the other hand, and you know this from interviews too, um, sometimes people are more likely to say, you know, if you had to rank the part of your identity that has the highest priority to you, they're going to say, well, I'm a Christian. Yes. Uh, I, you know, before I'm a Mexican-American. Yes. And that might not necessarily be the, the other way around with Catholics. Um, yeah. It's, it's like the eternal quest, right? I mean, I don't know how much, how much more time I want to give to it in my career. You go, you go, Brent. I mean, I don't know what you're heading yeah. for next. We'll talk about it at the end, yeah. right? But uh, it is certainly uh, a great research question, you know, for us religious yeah. geeks, right? It's like, ooh, so somebody with a dissertation just waiting to be written, you go, right? Because it's, yeah. it's really, exactly. really fascinating stuff. There's just a lot more there to be done. I am. You know, talking. I saw some tweets. Oh, please oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I saw some tweets yesterday. I this sure. this is being recorded right after the the election where the young Youngkin won in Virginia. Correct. And some tweets that were complaining. Well, the reason that Latinos voted so much for the Republican is because they're sick and tired of Anglo people calling them Latin X. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe that's part of this conversation too. I I think we need to get off Twitter. Is what I'm saying, Brent. <laughs> I just need, we need to stop it completely. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's a it's a poisonous, polarizing time we live in. And all I can say is I'm yeah. glad that your kids are good and they're doing well and we're we're doing well and we're just we're just yeah. working on ourselves and working on our scholarship <laughs> and trying and just yeah. every little day trying to trying to make the world a little better. That's it. There you, you know, go. That's, that's it. What else can you do? No, I don't know. I, I, literally at this point in time, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we are talking with Dr. Brett Hendrickson, uh, his new book published by Routledge, Mexican American Religions, an introduction. Now, a particular note, and this is something that not a lot of people have done work in. There's some good new scholarship out there, as you know, Felipe Hinojosa, uh, Mario Garcia, who's been doing work in this for quite a while. Um, yeah, right. You have sections on civil rights and Mexican American mm -hmm. religion. Not a lot, uh, meaning in terms of uh, in terms of the folks like myself and others who do religion and ethnic identity and ethnographic work and field work, the folks who do straight up religion and politics and Mexican-American religion, less so, right? But it's certainly a yeah. field that needs a lot more work and is, and is thriving and there's some good stuff there for yeah. sure. Um, what did you make of the role of, of churches, um, institutional popular movements and civil rights? Um, is political yeah. engagement something that you found uh, inside and outside the church when you were doing your research? Yes, I would say so. Uh, you know, I think that, first of all, even before the civil rights movement, per se, Mexican-Americans were active in, uh, maybe not in institutional politics, running for office, that sort of thing, or even in, you know, big street protests or such, but certainly organizing for their own protection um, you know, I'm thinking of some early efforts in New Mexico to make sure that, you know, language rights would remain in place in churches and things like that. Um, and then, you know, 
LULAC forms early in the 20th century, which right. has a bit of a civil rights cast to it, not as much as would come to be the case later in the, in the century. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I tried to do is not to avoid Cesar Chavez by any means. I mean, he's a very important figure and the United Farm Workers are super important uh, to the story of Mexican-American civil rights and I think also to Mexican-American religion. Um, but on the other hand, I didn't want to reduce it to that where you know the whole story revolved around Cesar Chavez and, and the UFW. Um, he certainly gets mentioned uh, in the book. I think it would be really strange if he didn't. Um, but I, I tried to also think about you know, the, the, the movement of students and um, the Chicano rights movement, which had a very uh, iffy relationship at times with the church, sometimes um, supported by some priests, but I think overall not that supported by the church. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I tried to argue, at least uh, to a certain extent in the book, is that um, religious studies helps us understand some of the research methods and, and theories of religious studies help us understand that the Chicano rights movement itself used mythologies and narratives in a way that, you know, I think are really, that are ripe for analysis by religious studies scholars. Um, of thinking about the, the role of, of the idea of Aztlan and this you know, mythical homeland of, of Mexican-Americans as being a, an anchor for the movement. Um, I also found uh, in various sources uh, with Paul Barton's work, um, with uh, Lloyd Barba's work, uh, looking at Protestants, uh, both mainliners and Pentecostals, who are also involved in uh, farm rights movements, farm workers movements um, in Texas, particularly in California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was, that's always great to read. Unfortunately, um, Felipe's book, uh, Apostles of Change, came out after I was done researching and already turned in the manuscript. And so that was really regrettable because I learned a lot from his book um, about different ways that uh, Latinos and other Mexican-Americans, or Mexican-Americans and other Latinos, I should say, uh, were involved in various sites around the country in kind of co-opting churches and forcing the hands of religious congregations and religious leaders to get involved in supporting uh, urban communities particularly, but also some rural communities when it comes to, um, you know, making the church do its job in a certain way through political action. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I was referring to his his work on Mennonites. Uh, that oh, I yeah. Was, yeah, at the, I think you know yeah, that. Yeah, also That's great book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, no, great stuff. Uh, and also, again, very necessary to kind of examine mm -hmm. that, to, to not suggest that, that there's an insularity and that's all like all A or B, right? All Mexican-Americans are Catholic. They just focus about church issues and parish issues. And, and right. yes, some do. Some operate outside of that completely and Protestants operate in their own way. But, you know, because they are a marginalized group of people who by and large had their land taken from them uh, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, and yeah. have law oppressive laws passed uh, to demonize and create this kind of carceral state um, mm -hmm. for a century now. Um, yeah. It's important, it's essential to kind of not ignore the political activism of these folks, of Padres, of Las Hermanas, of folks who, mm -hmm. uh, out, as you said, outside of the realm of the institutional church, you know, the power structure mm -hmm. of the church, decided something has to be done for, quote unquote, our people, right? And so that's where you kind yeah. of get the solidarity 
the idea that they are not viewing them simply as parishioners, right? Yeah, exactly. Sitting in pews, that these are people who we are obligated to help somehow. You know, and within the church, I think uh, Timothy Maravina at Notre Dame has done some really good writing and research about the the encuentros, this like Mm -hmm. series of big meetings of priests and other leaders in the Catholic Church, the U.S. Catholic Church, that have really worked on empowering and giving voice to the needs of Mexican-American parishioners uh, and, and also providing a forum for uh, Mexican-American and other Latino bishops and priests to let their voices be more um, sort of elevated in the, in the Catholic Church. So those have been really important events too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to mention that you have written two other books that deal on what is clearly one of my favorite topics that we're going to talk about next. But briefly, let me uh, tell the listeners that uh, Brett is also the author of two other books, Border Medicine, A Transcultural History of Mexican-American Curanderismo, uh, published by New York University Press, and also uh, The Healing Power of the Santuario de Chimayo, America's Miraculous Church, also New York University Press. So that's what he does for his downtime. He just puts us all to shame and writes and writes and writes and writes. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Um, I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Some of my favorite narratives uh, and of all writing, uh, your writing and all uh, your previous writings and in this book, uh, are on these popular saints, right? Oh yeah, so um, interesting. Great stuff. Teresita de Urrea, Don Pedrito mm-hmm. Jaramillo, and Nino Fidencio, one of my favorites. Uh, they're oh, healing. Yeah. Yeah, just fascinating stuff. We'll unpack that in a minute. There are healing processes that often run uh, afoul of Catholic and Protestant authorities, right? One of the things I try to tell my Protestant brethren is, you know, I know, I know people are supposed to cut off their cultural arm when they convert, but right. you're asking them to cut off their arm, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're ask- and they're not going to do that, right? I mean, no. they, might, they might change it. They might... Yeah. Um, modify it they might find a different outlet but but of, of a complete zero-sum game where you just yeah. become something else completely um mm-hmm. it's rare it's rare it happens clearly it happens there's no question in my mind it does uh but you know if you're hurting if you need help if you're if you don't have a lot of cash for your uh uh, even to go to a free clinic or uh, in yeah. some of the more really really marginalized communities where uh, this is where you go for your healing, for your consultations, for your spiritual consultations. You go to the curanderos, even to Absolutely. this day, right? Catholic or yeah. Protestant or other, you know. Um, so when they run afoul of these Catholic and Protestant authorities, and I'm sure you you can reach back into your previous work to tell us about that. Do you sure. think that the taboo nature of these popular saints has much effect on those who are seeking their help? I, I, I don't uh. think so, but... Tell me what uh, you found. You know, that's a good question. With with Teresita Rea and, and Pedro Caramillo, I would say not a huge amount. I wouldn't say the taboo nature makes as much a difference. Um, you know, that, that may, with Teresita, maybe a little in the, well, maybe more than a little in the sense that she, perhaps with her own collusion, perhaps not, was a real champion of indigenous populations in northern Mexico. And so in a sense, I think the fact that she was uh, speaking for the underdog, or at least for them represented their interests, that kind of taboo nature that put her outside the norm of, of Mexican society helped her in that regard. But Jaramillo, I think he was really a respected member of his community. 
Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if priests were necessarily recommending their parishioners go see him when they were sick. Uh, but I think for the most part, he was considered, I think, a gentleman and, and someone who was a resource for, for a lot for, for impoverished people, like you mentioned, but also for others that were there. You know, he, he just had a lot of uh, gifts uh, to offer when it came to healing. Um, with Nino Fidencio, I'm, I'm, I'm less sure because I think he's such a, a unique character uh, in folk healing and curanderismo. Uh, he himself, um, especially in today when, when we think we're a lot more, I think, um, sophisticated when we think about gender than we once right. were. I think Fidencio's gender identity mm -hmm. um, Today, especially among his followers today, the, the fidencistas, and I think that that sort of taboo nature of his identity, it makes him very attractive to LGBTQ uh, patients and individuals and followers. Right. right. Uh, and whether or not you would call that a taboo, I mean, it wouldn't, I think taboo from the, the, the hallowed halls of the Catholic Church or Protestant churches, maybe so in some cases, not in every case, but yeah, yeah, it, right. it provides a, re, a religious home and a healing home. Uh, where the leader himself, themselves, I don't know, maybe we should say was, yeah. um, you know, more uh, is, is his, compl his complex nature makes him sort of a touchstone and a place to go that feels more right, uh, that feels more welcoming, um, and that feels in his messiness, I think, is, is, a, is a place where a lot of people would rather be than uh, then maybe going somewhere to another church house where they, they might feel like they have to hide part of who they are. Right. To back yeah. up real quick, um, these curanderismo is still around. Obviously, it's it's a very active part of Mexican American folk religious um, life. But uh, yeah. the the people that we just talked about are late nineteenth, early twentieth century borderlands. Uh, crossroads, yeah. if you will, right? These are, this is a different time, right? Can you set up that kind of context for us? Um, sure. You know, what, what, what what's, uh, and by taboo, so that's one part of the question. The other part of the question was, what I meant by taboo, I think was, especially Fidencio and Urea uh, dabbled mm. in spiritism, right? Whether they oh, were- yeah. that's right? a good point. So uh, my interest, and I should have put it in the question, so that's my thing, um, is, Certainly, that would have run afoul of of institutional Catholicism yes. and definitely Protestantism, but of course, yeah. you know we have other ways around that, right? See, I, to me, popular religion is just a way around institutional <laughs> safeguards, right? It's a way to, for yeah. people to take control of their like religious life, you know. So, first of all, set set the the context for these borderland uh, uh, early twentieth century folks, and then yeah. that's what I. If you can, if you if you delved into it at all, the whole spiritism idea. Absolutely. Well, I think two things were happening. At, well, many things were happening, but two really important things were happening is that the the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz was making life really difficult for peasants, uh, particularly indigenous peasants, but you know also mestizo peasants in northern Mexico. And there was a and and after after the Porfiriato, his his dictatorship came to an end. Uh, then the Mexican Revolution that went on for almost a decade and, you know, obviously had the whole country in turmoil. Both of those events created a lot of migration from Mexico to the United States. Uh, 
And so you have a big rise in population numbers um, in the US of Mexican origin people. Uh, the other thing that's happening is all through this territory that used to be Mexico from California down to Texas, you have rising levels of, of Anglo migrants as well coming from the South and from the East and entering that part of the country. And as you said, um, taking land, buying land, appropriating land. Uh, and so you have a much a growing Mexican-American population uh, and at the same time, less and less of an opportunity to own land, to be empowered by land ownership or finding a place and often being you know, reduced to being kind of the, the underclass, uh, not even the working class, but like an underclass for uh, Anglo owners um, who were sucking, sucking up the economic goods. Uh, so I think that these borderlands curanderas and, and curanderos in, in that situation had a, a you know, were responding to not only physical ailments, but also to the anxieties, the stresses, the dislocation, the anomie, and everything else that, that came with the, the, this mass migration and the change in status from being a citizen of your own country in Mexico to being a, a minority, uh, mm -hmm. to being a, a discriminated against minority, um, sometimes it, it, in danger of violence and other sort of deprivation, discrimination. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think they, they had a lot to deal with. Um, with the spiritism, that's a great question. You know, of course, um, if you study um, Latin American religion, this was super popular in the end of the 1800s, the beginning part of the 1900s, uh, especially among elites. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. You know, it was this real European philosophy that was related mm -hmm. to progress. Uh, and it overlapped quite a bit with American spiritualism uh, mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. you know, mostly in, in, the, in the East, up you know, New York State, um, up and down the Eastern seaboard. Uh, there was this desire and an and ability to speak with, with the spirits, with, with the, the spirits of the dead. Right. And right. And, and, and not surprisingly, in both these cases, in spiritualism and Mexican spiritism, you have great thought leaders of human history, you know, people like Buddha and Jesus and Abraham Lincoln and, you know, coming and, and, and providing guidance to people. It's never just a uh, normal so, person, right? It's, it's, no, never, yeah, it's yeah. never Brett Hendrickson. How come it's not no, Brett Hendrickson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a thought leader, I can tell you that. They, uh, you know, so they, they, they had this this possibility though, to bring to voice their own, sometimes utopian ideals, but certainly ideals for a better society. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think that, that there's no wonder that that impulse to change society for the better got taken up by healers as something they were also interested in. Um, and so there you have it. I think yeah. uh, those yeah. kind of things tie together, but it certainly did leave them outside the bounds of, of most Christian churches sure. uh, at the time. Absolutely. Where, even, though, you know, even though to this day, the uh, spiritist movement in Brazil and Mexico and, and Latin America uh, uh, claim the title of Christian spiritism, which obviously would put them, it's a, it's a discussion for another time, but it does put them out of the, the, the spiritualism um, kind of those kind of conventions but it's an interesting thing you know there's a there's a, yeah. a deep desire to maintain a christian identity somehow right right still it's like I, well, you won't take like you're not going to take that away from me i i'm still going to no. claim it no matter what right yeah well and if jesus is speaking through you how can you 
how can you say I'm not Christian? You know, I know, I know. It's just, yeah, it's, and I'm sure it just drives the institutional church nuts. Uh, I am speaking with Dr. Brett Hendrickson, who is the author of Mexican-American Religions, an introduction uh, published by Routledge. All right. Our final question. Thank you so much for spending this time. I know you're busy. I appreciate it. Um, Towards the end of the book, you speculate on the future trends of Mexican-American religions. Um, Can you condense into the top three and then I'll do the same and, you know, uh, leave it at that. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I would say that um, the, the biggest trend, and I'm certainly not breaking any ground here at all, um, but that the, that the U.S. Catholic Church is, is now and will be for the next several decades a Latino church. Um, you know, at this point, I think we're getting close to 50% or more Latino membership. Uh, especially among younger Catholics. Uh, and I think that's just going to have a tremendous impact on the way Catholicism is practiced. It already is. Here, even uh, in Eastern Pennsylvania, where I live, where there really aren't that many Mexican-Americans, there are quite a few Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. Uh, but even here in, a, in what was pretty much a, a white Catholic stronghold, priests are having to learn Spanish when they go to seminary. It's, you know, that's they have great. to learn Spanish. You know, it's <laughs> that's just what great. it is. Yeah, um, I think that's just uh, the wave of the future and even of the present for the Catholic Church. And, you know, like I said, I'm not the the first or the only one to say that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's going to be a a big change um, where hopefully it's going to take a while, I think, for the general public to catch up and realize that when you think of a Catholic, you should think of a Mexican-American rather than, you know, Joe Biden, maybe, or, uh, (laughs) you know, you're right, you're right. Also Catholic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think another trend is that, um, you know, and I could be proven wrong here, and this is the problem with being a historian and trying to, to make predictions, but hey, what the heck. Uh, I don't think that the, the percentage of Catholics versus Protestants is going to change all that much hmm. uh, going forward. I think that it's, it's relatively stable. I could be proven wrong about that, but um, you know, we'll see what happens. I think the, the, the more likely scenario in both cases is that this is maybe the third trend, uh, is that the number of non-affiliated um, Mexican-American Catholic, uh, people would, would go up, that a move away from religious affiliation in general would, would rise. Uh, it's, it's a, it lags a little bit, the general population right now, um, but I think it could catch up. Um, and then I hope, you know, this is, a trend, less of a trend and more of a hope. Um, but I hope that that the I, that 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 Mexican American religious experience can continue to help decenter and move our entire understanding of U.S. history as less of an East to West history and and more of a of a history that's more cognizant of of other movements within the hemisphere. Um, you know, I think it's really important. And, you know, I, I, our students need to hear that U.S. history also is Latin American history. And, yeah, the, uh, the, know, the whole, the whole Americas idea, right? That this is, right. this is a, a, a Northern, Southern, it encompasses a large landmass of very, very different right. people. 
And, you know, if we could get the U.S. Religion Survey to start in Santa Fe and not, yes. in, and not in Massachusetts, then you yeah. have done us all a great service with this book. Okay? That's all <laughs> well, I'm saying. <laughs> we'll see what happens, right? Yeah. All right. So real quick, my three. Uh, I'm going to just do the theme of seeking, right? Hmm. I think we're going to see some Mexican, Mexican-Americans, because I have youngsters seeking to go back. Uh, the whole ah. Protestant Catholic Jew idea, right? That it skips a generation and then people eventually want to go back to recapture something. Mm. Whether they want to recapture their Protestantism, you know, maybe they, they have, as they say, backslidden parents or whatever, which is a pejorative, mm. I'm sorry, but that's the lingo. Um, yep. They're seeking to go back to traditionalist, you know, you may have some tradition, trad Catholics out there, you know, who are like, yes, you know, let's, we want to go back to Latin and we want to go back to the old ways. We want to go back to this, even though all of that, as we know, is kind of highly mythologized, right? But that whole idea that there's something back there to grab, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Also, number two, seeking to escape, right? To go Hmm. with your kind of the whole idea of like, like enough of it. Right. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it can be kind of a pro- we haven't talked about that. And, you know, it's it's not part of the book or anything, but just in general, for many people, and you mentioned the LGBTQ community and others, religion is oppressive. Right. Yeah. Religion is it's not right. their friend. Right. It, they don't seek solace mm-hmm. in it. They don't they, they find nothing but uh, but rejection. Right. And yep. that's largely the fault of the institutions. OK, mm-hmm. but uh, but seeking to, you know, so I think that the nuns, quote unquote, N-O-N-E-S. There, I yep. think that that number is going to grow. If it's grown from, let's say, 8% to roughly 14 to 15%, just among mm-hmm. Latinx, Latin communities, I think uh, the research at least shows me that that's going to grow. I don't know how big, yeah. but I think it's going to happen. Uh, and then finally, just seeking. Just seeking. Mm-hmm. Because they're free. They're free of the shackles, if you will, of, of you know, my great-grandma who said, you know, if you're not going to baptize your kids in the Catholic Church, I don't want to talk to you again. Right? <laughs> Something yeah. That I, yeah, you know, or are you going to get married in the church? And when are you going to get married? And, you know, so we're kind of at least some some of us in our third and fourth generation being here are free of that. Right. So maybe seeking. Yeah. So you might see more Buddhists. You might see more yeah. Hindus. You might see more Jews. You might see more. A hybridization of all kinds of things. Some going back even further to there's a lot of of growth in uh, Latina indigenous spirituality that really seeks to kind of previous to colonization, previous to all of that. Mm -hmm. What does that look like, right? What 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 does Mm -hmm. that that the earth based religions? What do those look like for uh, Mexicano Mexican Americans? So I think I think seeking, uh, especially for this generation. Let's just talk about our Gen Z folks, right? Yeah, I think that's it's a it's a very complicated picture, but I think it's a picture of growth, and I think it's it's very exciting, and I'm so yeah. glad that you were able to contribute to it, Brett, because this was really uh, uh, an essential book. And if you want to help, for those of you listening, you're going, this is great. Uh, my recommendation is buy all these books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So many good things to read. Yeah. So much good stuff. So much good stuff. Thank you, Brett. I so appreciate your time. And uh, you know what? I think, you know, maybe all fashions on me next time we meet, you know, if you're, hey. or maybe just straight bourbon. I, Who knows? You're, you're okay. a Arkansas I guy. <laughs> I won't forget it. I won't forget it. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Brett. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you.